So let yourself find a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease and listen. Not so much because there's something that you have to remember and there's no um, midterm that's coming up or grades, but just as a reminder, if there's something that touches you in a way to remind or reawaken that in you that knows, that place of your own wisdom. I'm particularly happy to be back, having just finished our two-month residential retreat here, the winter-long practice period. There was about 150 people or so who came either for the whole two months or one month at a stretch, and that ended uh, this weekend. Um, And it was really quite blessed. Um, I got to sit myself for the first month of it in silence, and I haven't had a whole month to sit in quite a while, so it was it was terrific to do that. Um, and I, 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 coming back over here a day or so later after the retreat ends, in my mind's eye I see all these people who are returning back from that retreat after we had our last kind of closing loving-kindness meditation and people coming down the hill and going off to various places that they live. And their faces were so open and young after two months of silence and so forth. We could probably sell this stuff in Hollywood as a kind of, you know, I haven't seen anything that kind of, without surgery anyway, that makes you look quite that young. But more than their faces looking pure and open, their hearts were really open. And you could feel it. And it's not that it was that easy. It actually took, in many people's case, quite a lot of courage to do a month or two retreat and a great deal of dedication. And part of the time, um, what happens as one begins to sit and really open inside is um, that all the unfinished business of the heart shows itself. You sit quietly and the heart says, oh, remember this? You haven't really listened to this or touched this. The, the grief, there were people there whose um, children had died. And so one of the women came into an interview. She said, I feel like I'll just never stop crying. And um, I listened for a while, and I said, how many tears? How big is the ocean? She said, oh, as big as the Pacific. I said, well, we have plenty of time, and there's room for your tears, and the earth could use the water, so weep away as you need to. And people who came with all the inner patterns of judgment and shame, relentless sometimes, failures, longings. Someone came in and said, I feel like I have a drill sergeant inside me. I don't know where they came from, you know. (laughs) And this whole drivenness. And people who would sit and their whole life would come over the course of days and weeks and see the things that they loved and the things that they regretted and the things that were unfinished. And somehow finding a way to hold all of that, to make peace with it, with a wise and compassionate heart to say, this too is part of humanity, and also this isn't all of who I am. Someone came into a retreat one day, and pulled into an interview one day, and pulled out of her pocket a hard-boiled egg that was still warm from breakfast, and said, I'm carrying this around because it's like my heart. I can finally feel it. I've been so shut down because of the abuse or the loss or the particular tragedy that had been in her life. She said, in 
somehow over these days of silence and listening, I feel like my heart's coming back, and here it is in my hand. It's like, <laughs> like, a, like holding a little bird in its nest. And people, some of them were doing Vipassana and just opening with awareness, and some were doing metta practice for a month or two months of loving-kindness over and over, themselves, benefactors, friends, beings far and near, young and old, animal, human, all the directions, a million forms of metta for different beings. You know, and when you get really still and quiet, the mind becomes quite luminous, and you can direct the field of loving-kindness And it's really, the inner experience is as if you become a lighthouse and this great light just shines out from your heart to that direction in the universe and then then that one and that one and it just kind of illuminates things. It was really wonderful. So people worked both with the healing that's critical to a wise spiritual life because you can't do a spiritual bypass, you know, the spiritual end run. (laughs) It doesn't work, actually. To be free, we need to find a compassion in the midst of this humanity, of this human life. Um, But in addition, as they sat, and you could see it as people came in, there was this beautiful and gradual shift of identity with lots of ups and downs and getting lost and fears and confusion and judgment. But as someone said, I start to fall back into this place of rest and freedom between the storms. I discover that what I've been seeking is where I am, is who I am. And someone came in during those big storms, talked about sitting by the stream. It was like talking to Siddhartha. Their eyes were really wide. They said, I was sitting, my mind was so quiet, and I heard Beethoven in the stream. Then I heard... You know, my favorite, you know, music, I heard rock and roll bands, I heard children playing, I heard battlefields and people dying and mothers giving birth. I was sitting and the stream had all the music of life in it. I just bowed to them, I said, yes, because it is. When you get still, the world starts to teach you again. And people would come in sometimes after weeks of struggling and healing and compassion and all of a sudden say things like I've never tasted such stillness or the joy that's come in me rapture has come I've never experienced rapture there are in the Buddhist text ten kinds of rapture there's the cool thrill that moves through the body there's the the deep light-filled rapture where your body turns into stars and then starts vibrating and dissolving and people would come and say is this normal I would just smile and say, well, it's your experience, why not? And then when your mind gets really quiet, you can invite it to become quite large. You can play with the space of consciousness from being very small, focused on the breath or the body, and then the body dissolves, and then the light comes in the body. And then you can say, because it gets transparent or lucid or malleable, is the word in the Buddhist psychology, when it's really silent, you can say, well, let it get vast now, or let the light open up. And it's kind of magical, actually. It's really strange. You, you, you say something like that, and it just does it. It's, quite, it's like having a little remote, right? On your, and you can change the cable channels. It turns out in Buddhist psychology, it's taught that when the mind is well-trained and lucid and um, consciousness is purified, really, by paying attention so that it's no longer identified with the small sense of self and it opens, then you can just point it in a certain direction, like 
like turning the light on in some direction or other. Space or consciousness or stillness or peace or luminosity. Um, all that arises quite naturally for people. And people started to walk around and they looked, there was a kind of dignity that came, this beautiful nobility, because they were remembering who they are underneath all the other storms and dramas of their life. One woman came in, she looked like a queen that morning in her interview, and she said, I feel this, I now I understand what they talk about nobility in the Buddhist teachings, because I don't want anything. I don't need anything. I feel like I'm a queen because everything that I want is already within me. And she just smiled and sat there. It was lovely. And then this other woman walked in and she said, you know, that guy who sits in this particular row, who's got all the tattoos and wears the Marine t-shirt, Semper, you know, Fidelis on it and stuff, who'd been the Marine, obviously. She said, I can't believe it. He's down by the dining hall sniffing the flowers, you know, and I'm just not used to watching the Marines out there smelling the blossoms as they come by. A poem from Emily Dickinson. Feudal the winds to a heart in port, done with the compass, done with the chart, rowing in Eden. And there was a sense of the emptiness and with it this very deep compassion that grew for people, for their own suffering, for the sorrows of those that they knew, the people around them, a connectedness. People began to feel they would sit outside and the winds would come and the rains and then they'd sit by the trees and the stream and discover that you have the same last name as the oak trees and the iris that were really part of the same family. When the heart returns to its true nature, So I had a wonderful retreat as well. All these things I'm telling you, some are my experiences and some are other people's and more. Um, But it was really a great blessing. Um, And we would hear Monday night people coming in and out. You know, it's a little like the tide pool down here, (laughs) coming in and out. And, And the bell would be ringing down here and up there. And people would be doing loving kindness and compassion practice for everyone down here. So it feels like it was woven together. So I want to continue tonight, kind of based on this description of the retreat, to think together with you, or to speak together with you, about the quality of awakening or liberation of heart and healing that are woven together in the teachings of the Buddha. A story that I like to tell from years ago, um, during the Vietnam War, when I was working on medical teams in the Mekong River Valley, uh, the border of Thailand and Laos in the Peace Corps, I went um, to visit friends of mine in Vietnam and went to this temple in the Mekong Delta. Um, uh, The abbot was called the Coconut Monk because he lived on coconut. Um, And uh, we had to take a boat down from Saigon through the Delta, and it was in an area where there was a lot of active fighting. There were helicopter gunships and firefights in the distance. You could really feel the impact of being in the war. Terribly painful and um, frightening, really. And when the boat pulled up to his monastery, the monks greeted us, and they all wore these um, Buddhist robes with a big patch on them that had a 
um, automatic rifle, rifle broken in half, and it said underneath in a number of languages, we will fight no more. And it was like a refuge in the middle of the war, this monastery, and they were chanting for compassion. And at the far end of the island, there was a hill. And on top of the hill, when I walked there past the temple, there was a big statue, probably 40 feet tall, of the Buddha standing there. And right next to him was an equally tall statue of Jesus. And they had their arms around one another as brothers. And I looked at these statues and at the, felt the power of the monastery. And there's the helicopter gunships and there's the war going around. And here's Buddha and Jesus with their arms around each other with the little smile that you see as if to say, um, there is another way. There is another truth. There is a truth bigger even than the war that you are fighting. The wars come and go. But both the Buddha and Jesus were known as healers, as the great physicians, as the healers of the spirit of humankind and of the world. And there they were resting in something that was timeless and eternal. Didn't matter even that there was a war. They were speaking a language greater than that violence. To come to that place of healing in ourselves and in a world that so desperately needs it requires for each of us a willingness to stop, to begin to listen, to listen not just with the ears, but to listen somehow with the whole body or being or perhaps to listen with the heart. So I read you a story, one of my favorite stories. See how much time we have for things tonight. Let's just kind of go along here. This is from Richard Selzer, who is a uh, surgeon at Yale University Medical School. And he writes, on the bulletin board in the front hall of the hospital appeared an announcement, Yeshe Dundon will make rounds June 10th, the, followed by a notation, Yeshe Dundon is personal physician to the Dalai Lama. I'm not so leathery a skeptic that I would knowingly ignore an emissary from the gods. So on the morning of June 10th, I joined the clutch of white coats in the small conference room adjacent to the ward selected for rounds. The air in the room is heavy with ill-concealed dubiety and suspicion of bamboozlement. <laughs> and if you don't know what that understands, ask your doctor. <laughs> At precisely six o'clock, he materializes, a short, golden, barely man dressed in a saffron robe and maroon. He bows in greeting while his interpreter makes an introduction. Yeshe Dundon will examine a patient selected by a member of the staff. The diagnosis is unknown to Yeshe Dundon as it is to us. The examination of the patient will take place in our presence and then we will reconvene in the conference room to discuss the case. We are further informed that for the past two hours Yeshe Dundon has purified himself by fasting and prayer and I, who caught a quick breakfast on the way to the hospital and has given no thought at all to my soul, suddenly seemed rather soiled and uncouth in comparison. <laughs> the patient was awakened early, told she was to be examined by a foreign doctor and had been asked to produce a fresh specimen of urine. So when we enter her room, the woman shows no surprise. She has long ago taken on that mixture of compliance and resignation that's the face of chronic illness. Yeshe Dundon steps to the bedside, 
while the rest stand apart watching. For a long time he gazes at the woman, favoring no part of her body, but seeming to fix his glance just above her supine form. No physical sign or obvious symptom gives innate clue to her disease. At last he takes her hands, raising it in both of his own. Now he bends over the bed in a kind of crouching stance, his head drawn into his robe. His eyes are closed as he feels for her pulses. In a moment he found the spot, and for the next half hour he remains thus, suspended over the patient like some exotic golden bird with folded wings, holding the pulse of the woman beneath his fingers. All the power of this man seems to have been drawn down to this one purpose, to touch and cradle her hand as a ritual. From the foot of the bed where I stand, it's as though he and the patient have entered a special place apart from us across which no violation is possible. After a moment, the woman rests back on her pillow, and from time to time she raises her head to look at the strange doctor and then leans back. I cannot see their hands touched in a correspondence that is intimate, exclusive, as she offers her wrist, but all at once I am envious, and not of him, not of Yeshe Dundon for his gift of beauty and holiness, but of her. I want to be held like that, touched so, received, and I know that I, who have palpated a hundred thousand pulses, have not felt a single one. At last, Yeshe Dundon straightens, gently places the woman's hand on the bed, steps back, the interpreter produces a small wooden bowl and two sticks into which he pours a portion of the urine specimen and proceeds to whip the liquid with the two sticks. Then bowing above the bowl, he inhales the odor three times, sets the bowl down, and turns to leave, all the while he's not uttered a single word. As he nears the door, the woman raises her head and calls out in a voice at once urgent and serene, Thank you, doctor, thank you, she says, and touches with her other hand the place he had held on her wrist as though to recapture something that had visited there. Rounds are at an end. We are in the conference room, and Yeshe Dunnan speaks in soft Tibetan sounds through the interpreter, a bilingual fugue, like the chanting of monks. He speaks of winds coursing through the body of the woman, currents that break against barriers eddying, these vortices are in her blood, he says, the last bendings of an imperfect heart. Between the chambers of the heart, long, long before she was born, a wind had come and blown open a deep gate that must never be opened. Through it charged the full waters of her river as the mountain stream cascades in springtime, battering, knocking loose the land and flooding her breath. And then he is silent. May we now have the diagnosis, a professor asks. The host of these rounds, the man who knows, answers. Congenital heart disease, he says. Interventricular septal defect with resultant heart failure. A gateway in the heart, I think, that must not be opened. Through it charges the full waters that flood her breath. So here is the doctor listening to the sounds of the body to which the rest of us are deaf. He is more than doctor, he is priest. I know the doctor to the gods is pure, 
while the doctor to human stumbles, often wounds, his patient must die as he must. But now and then it happens, as I make my own rounds, that I hear the sounds of his voice like an ancient Buddhist prayer, its meaning long since forgotten, only the music remaining. And then a jubilation possesses me, and I feel myself as if touched by something divine. There is a healing, an awakening, a freedom of heart that is the invitation of the Buddhas to all beings, that is possible for each one of us and comes from our courage and sensitivity and more than anything else, our ability to truly listen, to listen deeply. And the whole quality of listening, which one could describe as mindfulness itself. Thich Nhat Hanh, in writing of of the text of mindfulness, calls it transformation and healing. And there is in its very beginning the invitation from the Buddha to pay attention and listen for living beings to overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, awaken compassion, travel the path of liberation, and realize freedom through the establishment of mindful attention, aware, diligent, clear, listening to the body in the body, observing the feelings in the feelings, mindful of the mind in the mind and aware of the Dharma itself within the Dharma. This is the path to awakening, says the Buddha. Mindfulness, better emphasis in the word, is there for us in any moment that we give a full and deep and real attention to ourselves, our bodies, our hearts, to another around us, without resisting, without judging, just listening deeply. And perhaps when you listen to that story of Yeshe Dundin, you can feel, as I do, that longing that we all have, the wish to be held, to be so respected, so received, so listened to. In fact, the world itself, our family, our garden, our co-workers, the prisoners in our prisons and the wardens and guards, the laborers and the managers, everyone wants to be listened to in some deep way. And Yeshe Dundin begins to remind us of the power of this listening heart of wise attention. Even in the face of the great truths of impermanence, of the immense suffering of the world, of illness, of death, still there is something in us that has to listen and know. One family member of mine who went through 
chemotherapy and whole healing process several years ago for cancer. Talked about in the middle of it how it felt like in her body the chemotherapy was like a poison or a fire. And we did a kind of meditation together for a time. And she closed her eyes and went as if into a place of great healing or healing temple. And there was indeed fire and the images of hell. And I said, well, let them burn. Let the whole purification take place as long as it needs to, which was a long time in the meditation. On and on and on, until somehow it had burned through her body as she sat and we allowed this energy without resisting or judging, just listening. And after a time, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, I don't remember how long, 40 minutes, her expression became more peaceful and still, and her eyes were closed, but we were talking. And I asked, what's happening? She said, oh, the fires have died down for a long time now. It became dark, kind of like charcoal still. But now all of a sudden, this sense of lightness is coming, this green, beautiful, lovely spring. And all through the cells and the nerves and the fabric of my body, having allowed the fire to burn through, there's something new that wants to be born. When we listen to ourselves, to one another, with a kind of deep respect, listening with the heart, we allow ourselves to trust in the capacity of the heart to hold the sorrows that we've been given and the beauty of life. We trust in a greater reality than the things that scare us, the small sense of self. We trust in this great open attention or awareness that the Buddha invites in the text and the teachings of mindfulness. And there's both a humility and a respect, and at the same time an understanding that we can tune into or rest in a reality that is so much deeper than the struggles of the moment. As my teacher Ajahn Chah puts it, he says, Ordinarily, we human beings are constantly in combat, at war to escape the fact of being so limited, limited by so many circumstances we cannot control. But instead of escaping, we continue to create suffering, waging war with what's evil and with what's good and with what is too small and waging war with what's too big and waging war with what is too short or too long or right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. To listen with the heart is to step out of the conflict and the battle for a moment. Anything you've been in conflict with. Take a deep breath. Rest on the earth. See with the eyes of compassion. Listen with an open and empty heart. A kind of mystery that we're all in together. Especially in this time of managed care, More emphasis seems to be placed upon the quick amelioration of symptoms, short-term work and privatized profit-making clinics, than upon the lovely and mysterious alchemy 
that comprises the healing cords between and within human beings, the cords that soothe our terrors and help us to return to our wholeness. And really, whether it's in medicine or spiritual life, the healing doesn't come so much from something we do as from the cleansing and the opening so that that which wants to heal within us is given the place again to re-blossom. So here's the Buddha, Buddha suggesting that if we are to heal and awaken, we become aware of the body in the body. Usually we're either identified with it and we're worried about our body. It's too big or small or right or wrong. You know all those worries? right, or wrinkled or old or whatever it's doing. So one way we get too identified. Or on the other hand, which happens maybe even more often in spiritual communities, we kind of try and ignore it, right, and dissociate from it. Like that line I use, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body, right, that James James Joyce quote. And so we have this kind of -of out-of-the-body spirituality and we're out of touch with ourself. But as we come into meditation, the invitation of the foundations of mindfulness for healing and freedom is to come to the body in the body, to breathe, to, to trust, to rest in the body, to be informed by the body as we are. Pain comes, pleasure comes. When we first come in, you get the whole catastrophe, really, all the tension that you've carried for the last day or month or week or year, how long we've been running around. You start to become quiet. And then all the tension and the patterns of tightness and all the things that are unfinished start to reveal themselves. As Alice Miller says, the body will eventually present its bill. (laughs) for it cannot be ignored it is as incorruptible as a child so what do we do what do we do when we really listen to the body first there is a re-inhabiting in a fearless way fearless no matter what is wrong in the body a trusting that we can touch this human body that we've been given with love, with understanding, instead of fear, instead of aversion, instead of avoidance, with a tenderness of heart. So a passage from one spiritual teacher talking about working with the body. He says, what is it? old Catholic father, he said, I came from a poor white family where we drank and lived hard. The men treated the body like a truck that you used and ignored. In the church it got worse. I hated to deal with my body. I lived on coffee, then on scotch. Gradually, as I looked at the simple people who came to talk to me and saw how many tortured bodies there were, as well as tortured souls, my faith and love got past all that nonsense about sin and the body in the church. It doesn't have to be so hard. I realized that I'd been taught to love my enemy, and I took a vow of nonviolence, which included my body. My practice became, do not torment myself, 
do not escalate the pain. And I began to teach it to others. It turned into a practice of gratitude. I started to get up in the morning and the care for my body is the beginning. It's poignant how simple it is. So we sit in meditation and we re-inhabit this body with a pure attention. And the tension releases and the things that we carry start to open. And the quality of how we touch what is given to us, this precious human body, starts to change. And instead of struggling, ignoring, or getting lost in our agenda and our ideas, we can listen to what we eat and how we move and how we care for this very body. We begin to listen like Yeshe Dundon held that woman's pulse. Feel it. You don't have to close your eyes, but just sense this living, pulsing body. And how have you touched it? The difficulties, the illness, the pain? With aversion, with fear, denial? Or is there a deep compassion for this life, this precious life, and a strength of love that you can bring to this very body? And as we feel into our body, says the Buddha, more deeply, we feel its warmth and coolness, its tingling and vibration, its expansion and contraction, hard and soft. We feel the earth and the air and the fire and the water that is given birth to us. We breathe and become aware of this body that is born and aging and sickens and dies that is so precious to have made of this earth and appear as it does. And on this beautiful blue-green earth, when we forget to listen to our body and our senses, then our personal life or our collective community and economic life allows for environmental destruction and toxic chemicals that fill our blood you know, and the destruction that comes from our conflicts of war and racism, and all of it because we don't listen really deeply. Because when we learn to listen here, we begin to listen to one another. It can't be any different. It's like uh, the young man... Now, it wasn't so young, but maybe in his 30s. At a men's retreat some years ago, we were talking about violence in man and guns. And he stood up at some point in the heat of this conversation, and he said that when he had turned 19, he'd gone over to Israel. He was really wanting to live there, become part of that experiment of living in the... Uh, kibbutz, the kind of communes in the earliest days of Israel. But when you go and live there and want to become a citizen, then you also have to join the army. So he said, I never expected that, but they said I had to. So I went in and they gave me my training and, you know, put a gun in my hand and showed me all these things. 
And then they sent me on my duty up to this little outpost in the north of Israel, a guard post. And I was guarding against the Palestinians as if, or whoever it was, they were the enemy. He said, I was there with my gun in this little outpost and one or two other people. And one day I looked out the window and there was a hillside across from me. And this 10-year-old Palestinian girl, a goat herd, walked across the hillside wearing her white clothes with the little goats around her. And she didn't know anyone was watching. And all of a sudden in the sunlight, she just spread her arms out as 10-year-old girls are wont to do and began to dance on the hillside with the goats as her companions. He said, and I looked at her and I began to weep and I felt the gun in my hand. And I said, I simply can't do this. I cannot do this. And I resigned from the army and I left Israel and I'm back here now. Because we really can't do it to one another if we really if we look one another in the eye. Whether it's Palestinians or Israelis or Hutus and Tutsis. And we can only do it when we make someone else the enemy and don't listen with the heart. You know, there aren't any Islamic terrorists any more than there. It's, that's a f- kind of stupid way to put it. I mean, we don't call the Ku Klux Klan Christian terrorists, do we? We don't call the people who shoot their rifles at abortion clinics to kill doctors Christian terrorists. Um, there are a hundred, there are a billion, a billion followers of Islam. You know, there are people who are terrorists, who are doing terrible things. But we, uh, we have these campaigns that happen in our culture and in our mind that all of a sudden make somebody else the enemy. And it's just not true. Their children, their dreams, their bodies, their hopes, whoever they are, are your children, your dreams, your hopes, your body, no different. Rachel Carlson, who writes... The child's world is fresh and new and beautiful, full of wonder and excitement. It is our misfortune that for most of us this clear-eyed vision, the instinct for beauty and awe, is dimmed before we even reach adulthood. If I had influence with the good fairy who is supposed to preside over the blessing of all children, I would simply ask that her gift to each child in the world would be a sense of wonder so indestructible it would last throughout their life that we would keep our true instinct for what is beautiful alive. To sit in meditation is to reawaken that for our own bodies and for the body and the beings of this earth. And it is so deeply needed. It is also invited to be aware of feelings and feelings. If the body isn't enough for you, yes, Don Juan, Carlos Castaneda's teacher, says the most difficult part about the sorcerer's way is to realize that the world is a feeling. But what is this healing and liberation in touch with feelings? It's so amazing that we can feel this vocabulary of human life that is so much in our feelings. I mean, that determines how you treat people and how you treat yourself and what you do. It is, you know, your feelings. 
as William O. Douglas said, on the Supreme Court level where I work, 90% of our decisions are made by our feelings. The other 10% is used of our intellect to justify what we feel. You know that's true, don't you? And if that happens at the legal level of the Supreme Court, take a look at your own life. So the feelings. I have a list of 500. Affectionate, ambitious, aggressive, ambivalent, angry, amused, amorous, antagonistic, antsy, apathetic, apoplectic, appreciative, argumentative, blissful, broken-hearted, bored, bad, bonkers, calm, cheerful, claustrophobic, compassionate, concentrated, curious, concerned. I could go on and on. It's amazing, huh? Tense, troubled, thrilled, tortured, tickled, worried, whimsical, wild, wistful. What an amazing vocabulary of human life. And what the listening heart, like the fingers at the pulse, asks is to know what we feel, to know deeply what we feel. First, simply to know them. But then you sit in meditation, you know, and spiritual life sometimes emphasizes the problem, the afflictive emotions, greed, hatred, jealousy, and fear, and so forth. What C.S. Lewis says, we have a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds everyone carries inside, you know, (laughs) the menagerie in the heart, basically. And you sit quiet and all the feelings will come, the 10,000 joys and sorrows. And it was really kind of amazing to watch people sit with their grief and their love and their longing, all of that, and learn to tolerate it all. Because if we don't know how to grieve, then we don't know how to love. Do not send a man to war who does not know how to weep. It's an old expression. One of the great tasks of a spiritual life is to let ourselves sit quietly enough to hold and touch and open to the joys and the sorrows that each of us has been given. Because whatever we fear will follow us. It's like Mullah Nasruddin, the old Sufi wise man and fool, a kind of holy fool. He went in the tea shop one day and he said, Single-handedly, I caused a whole tribe of bloodthirsty Bedouins to run. And his friend said, Oh, Mullah, how did you do that? And he said, It was quite simple. I ran and they ran after me. (laughs) Whatever we don't allow ourselves to feel will follow us. It will take us over in unconscious ways. If we don't know how to weep, the tears will build up in us. If we're afraid of our anger, some people are afraid of their joy. If we're afraid of happiness, overcome all bitterness because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the sorrows of the world in her heart, you are called upon to meet, you carry the pains of the world in your heart, 
and you are called upon to meet them in compassion and joy instead of self-pity. So at one other retreat that I did over the many years working with young men from the inner city and gangs, these guys weren't sure they wanted to be on this retreat, even though we were drumming and telling stories and stuff. I don't know what I'm doing here. We made a big altar out in the woods in Mendocino and said, before we can begin, we have to not only bring our bodies in the room, but we have to bring our hearts, our soul, our spirit into the room as well. So we made this big, beautiful altar, lit some candles, and said, we want you to go down to the stream. There was a little creek there. And bring back a stone for every person that you know who has died. And carry it with your prayers and place it on this altar. And all of a sudden, this group of, you know, quite a few young, you know, recalcitrant, what do you, you know, what's this stupid stuff we're doing, man? Young men started to go down to the stream. And the great sorrow was how many rocks they brought back. Because young people aren't supposed to know that many dead people. But it was guys in their gangs who were killed in drive-bys. You know, it was guys in their gangs that were killed in fights and in prisons and in car crashes and um, people in their community that had died. And some of them brought three, four, five, six, eight, ten, fifteen stones one at a time, and they carried them as if they were their brothers or their children. So when we sit, we each have our measure of sorrows to hold with loving kindness and compassion because it is given to you as a human being if you would live with dignity and freedom to do so. And at the same time, we must also allow the joy of life that small sense of self that gets lost, the body of fear also has to give way, this shift of identity, to know that there is the ocean of tears and there's the great space of compassion that holds it all. And as these people did in the two-month retreat, little by little, the tears began to give way to breath and openness and happiness and joy. The image from the Buddha is of salt in a little cup that makes the water so salty you can hardly drink it. And to take the same spoon of salt and place it in a lake and drink the water, it's so pure you can hardly taste a grain of the salt. And as you sit and practice and make space, the mind becomes wide and spacious, the heart opens, and begin to realize that suffering is not the whole story of this world. In fact, that the sorrows of the world are not enough, that it's too beautiful and too precious to be seen only through the vision of sorrows. And we sit like the Buddha to see all of it and bow to it all. And the mind opens up with the mind to observe the mind in this stillness. And at first, it's just thoughts and images. You know that cartoon from the New Yorker shows the car going down the highway across the broad, you know, southwest, this great, great long distances, and one of the little roadside signs that says, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles. Right? <laughs> 
You come into meditation and there is no pride. I mean, the mind has no pride. It will do anything. And it tells it trivia and reruns and problems and it goes over and over again and then you get movies and then you get songs and then you know what you get? Commercials. <laughs> Imagine that. I was in this monastery. I'd been in Asia for five years. I'm sitting there, you know, in silence and all this great opening and then, you know, and all of a sudden I see this picture and it's like, Bubbles in a sink and use Ajax, bum bum, no problem. And my God, you know, it is all recorded in there. The soul becomes dyed with the color of its thoughts, says Marcus Aurelius. And the thoughts that we carry and then take to be real are those that sweep us up. So that in India, when a pickpocket meets a saint, they say, He sees only the saint's pockets. Hmm, what can I take? That's all. Our desires and our thoughts blind us. And we each have our stories. So many different stories. But in fact, oh, here we are. Where's the passage of stories? We participate in the feeding of our stories. We can enact the personal myths of warrior, goddess, eternal adolescent, great mother, king or queen, master, slave, or servant of the divine. Is our story and our life one of riches or poverty, inwardly or outwardly? Are we the victim, the lost soul, the one who suffers, the prodigal son, the workhorse, the conqueror, the mediator, the nurturer, or the sage. And when we begin to sit, we see all these different stories about ourselves and the world, the fabric of the stories, and how we get lost in praise and blame, and this is good and that's no good, and optimism and pessimism, and so forth. And blinded by our thoughts, conflicted, confused. And yet, As one of my teachers, Nisargadot, said, most simply, the mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. It becomes possible with the mind to see the mind, with the great mind of compassion and spaciousness, to see all the stories that come and go and realize that we don't have to believe them. It's like, imagine you have to believe all those 117 channels, you know, that you get from your satellite dish, all the stuff on there. I hope you don't believe that stuff. You know, it's the same inside. You don't have to believe it. And then you can choose which channel. The shopping channel? Well, no, I don't think so. Not right now. Anyway, thank you. You know, maybe it's time to turn off CNN and turn on Mozart to listen to something that's restful, spacious and wise for us. And it's not that the thoughts go away. I mean, we can purify and quiet the mind and train it. And I had days on my retreat when there was very little thought and just these great spaces of silence and stillness and light and so forth. But then I came back and there was all the piles of mail and the messages in the answering machine and the plumbing to deal with and getting my car fixed. And my wife had a long list of things that needed to be done. 
and I started thinking again, big time, right? Because <laughs> it's what it does. You know, it's just what minds do. Minds think. They secrete thoughts like you secrete saliva. They just do it. <laughs> so you can quiet it and purify it and not take the judgment so seriously. The big thing in the end, the healing, is not that you don't think, but it's the shift from the mind to the heart. Oh, nobly born, who are you really? Are you all these little thoughts that come and have so many opinions that change from one day to another, you know? Or is there not within you a timeless, eternal, present, a stillness that is beautiful, awake, full of compassion, and yet empty in some way? Not with struggle do we come to this, not trying to change oneself, or not by fighting against all the things in the mind, but discovering that stillness that is always here. There's this huge silence, ever-present, around the thoughts and images of mind. And somehow as we sit, we we return to those levels of listening, like Yeshe Dundon with the pulse of our body, our hearts, our mind. You know this place. You know it as sure as you know your own name. And you touch it walking in the forests, in the mountains, standing by the ocean. Sometimes at night when you're so happy to go to sleep, oh, I could just let go of these thoughts and fall into deep sleep. What a sweet time it is, isn't it? Ah, that stillness. And then you begin to feel the Dharma in the Dharma. Dharma means the truth, the nature, the way things are. This from Chuang Tzu, the sage. He says, a drunken man who falls out of a cart, though he may suffer, does not die. His bones are the same as other people's, but he meets his accident in a different way. His spirit is in a condition of security. He's not aware of riding in the cart, neither is he conscious of falling out. Therefore, ideas of life or death, fear and the like, do not penetrate his breast, and so he does not suffer from contact with the objective existence. If so much security is to be gotten from wine, how much more is it to be found from resting in the Tao? Spaciousness, listening, and inner stillness allows this shift of identity from the small sense of self, the body of fear, to sense that we are part of this mysterious river. O nobly born, in its true nature, mind is naked, timeless, silent, luminous, This is so, and if you talk to half those people walking out of the retreat, you know, they were still in that space for a little while. They knew it because they had time to listen. Hi, you kids, come on. Come sit up front here, everywhere but just in the middle. You can take a place. So the kids from the family program, come, join us. Hi. Come and have a seat. We've got space. Just leave a little spot here open, anywhere else, but not right in the middle. Yeah, that's good, over there. 
Can you just move a little bit over there to leave the middle place open? Thanks. You two guys, get out of the way just a little bit. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, if you take it too seriously, it's pretty problematic, isn't it, here? I wonder what the Buddha thinks about this. He says, actually, I'm always in disguise. I'm all around you, but you don't remember who I am. You don't recognize me. When we take refuge in the Buddha, it's to see the Buddha nature, the secret beauty in every being that you meet. When we take refuge in the Dharma, it's to see that which is true, to listen with the heart, not just with the ears or the mind, but to listen with that place of wisdom, the one who knows. And the end of all our exploring, says T.S. Eliot, will be to return to where we started and know the place for the first time. There's so much healing that is asked in our lives, in our bodies, in the world, for these children and all the children. And more than anything, the courage that's asked of us is to open our hearts and really listen. And it's such a gift to be able to sit quietly and remember this in ourselves. Whatever form your practice takes, in whatever way you are able to make the time to listen, do it. It's it's a treasure. It's precious. So these um, uh, young people who came up are going to chant for us some of the blessings from the Sutra on Loving Kindness. Is that right? The Metta Sutta, which is the Sutra on Loving Kindness, but not quite yet. But you guys have learned it. Do you know it? And it is, it is one of the forms of healing that's used both in the meditation and the great temples of Asia, that when somebody is sick, um, the practice that's done is to direct the power of loving compassion through the whole of their body and to have others do so as well. But before you chant, I want to invite somebody else to sit up here as well. Would you, somebody pass me that um, folding chair and put it right up here in the middle? Yeah, you could do that. It means you've got to move one side or the other. That's good. Yeah, that's fine. Good work. Ring the bell. Facing out. That's right. Um, for the past, I don't know how many years, it feels like forever, actually, one of the people who's held the basket on Monday nights for, I don't know, seven years, ten years, forever, um, that many of you have seen who come regularly is who's a dear friend and community member is, is uh, Catherine Mann. Um, and I want to ask her to come and sit here, um, if you would, please. Um, because she's been recently diagnosed with um, metastatic cancer, oh, quite serious. Um, so sit down and face out if you can do it. 
And um, one of the lovely things, we did it on our long retreat there, one of the lovely things that one can do after sitting and as we have, quieting down for the time or listening to the teachings, is to touch that place of loving kindness and then offer it to another being as well as to ourselves as a healing. And so first maybe we could hear the chant of loving kindness from you all and then we'll do a little bit of a kind of meditation. So are you all ready to chant? You want to stand up and face out everybody? That's good. There you are. My name is Sally and I'm one of the teachers of the family program and while you are down here sitting and practicing we some of you may know and some of you may not know but we are up in the yurt doing our own meditation and our own practice and one of the things that we do quite often is um, metta loving kindness meditations and these aren't exactly the chants but it's the promise of uh, what you receive when you practice metta. And um, one of the ways that we do just with our Buddha is we make a game, very fun game, called metta tag. And it's freeze tag. And if I am it and I freeze Ryan, the only way that he can be unfrozen is for someone else to come by and give him a loving kindness um, phrase, such as, may you be happy May you never have homework. May you, <laughs> may you have many friends. May you have lots of chocolate cake. We have a little fun with our metta practice. And this is what we have for you to, to share with you. Um, people who practice metta sleep peacefully. <laughs> Wake peacefully. Dream peaceful dreams. People will love them. Angels will love them. <laughs> <laughs> Angels will protect them. Poison and weapons and fire will do not harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, they are reborn in a heavenly... Rome. Rome. <laughs> <sighs> Thank you. So if you would sit down for just a moment, kids, and for the rest of you, if you would give your attention for a moment to Catherine. Now she's not holding the basket as she usually does, <laughs> maybe imaginarily. And by the power of the Buddha and all of those who are awakened in this great tenfold universe, by the power of the Dharma and the power of the Sangha, which is all of you together, offer your loving kindness first to Catherine and then we'll extend it to others. You can look at her. May she be held in loving kindness and compassion. And you take it in. That's your job. You have to look out there, right? <laughs> and may you be safe. 
from inner and outer dangers. And may you be well, healed in body and mind. And may you be happy and free. And may you be healed and patient and calm and joyful and strong. May you be blessed and balanced and at ease. And may you be blessed for all the long days of your life, the long days of a long life. And may the power of our blessings and practice touch you in every cell of your body and bring you healing and strength and blessings. And now let your loving kindness meditation as you practice extend to Terry in New York and to so many beings, those who you can name, and those far and near, that you want to offer your compassion and healing so that all beings everywhere, young and old, those in difficulty and need, those who want to be held in compassion, and those who've forgotten their way, may they all be blessed. May all beings, as Catherine has, sits here, may she and all beings together be held in compassion. May she and all beings be safe from inner and outer dangers. May she and all beings be well in body and mind, be healed. And by the power of our own dedication and love and goodness and blessings, may Catherine and all beings be happy and free. And let us chant the simple chant of bowing to or blessings namo nine times. Namo is the greeting in India, namaste. I honor the sacred, the divine within you. I see the secret beauty. Namo.
more. May your week ahead be filled with blessings and your heart listen deeply to what you know. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.